Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. On today's episode, the History Guy tells two stories of hygiene history. First, he talks about the long history of soap, and then he tells us the story of Ignaz Semmelweis, one of the first doctors to argue that doctors should wash their hands to prevent spreading disease. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. It might seem surprising since so many of us seem to just now be learning how to properly wash our hands, but soap has been with us for a very long time. Market research suggests that the global soap market will reach about 22 billion US dollars annually by 2022, and about 13 billion bars of soap are sold in the United States every year. But the use of soap has ebbed and flowed over the millennia based on both inventions and changes in convention. The surprising history of soap deserves to be remembered. Chemically, soap is the alkali salt of fatty acid, most commonly made by mixing fats and oils with an alkali base in a chemical process called saponification. The unique properties of soap are derived from its molecular structure, a molecule that binds easily with water on one end, while on the other end bonds easily to oils. Because of this structure, soap cleans in a couple of ways. Many viruses have lipid membranes on the outside that both protect the pathogen and contain proteins that allow the pathogen to infect cells. When you wash with soap and water, the ends of soap molecules that avoid water and are attracted to oils embed themselves in these membranes, in essence, tearing the pathogen apart. But in water, soap molecules also form cellic structures called micelles, and these are tiny balls or bubbles with the hydrophilic or the ends attracted to water on the outside and the lipophilic or the ends attracted to oils on the inside. These micelles surround grime like dirt, broken up viruses and bacteria, which are then rinsed away in the water. While there are some natural soap-like substances, usually plant substances that lather in water, they do not have the unique chemical properties of soap. There is a difference between soap and detergent, which is usually made by mixing chemicals in a mixer. While they are similar, both including molecules that attract water on one end and oil on the other, detergent is made to be more soluble in water, especially hard water, so that it is less likely to bind to calcium and create soap scum when used in a machine. It isn't clear when humans came up with the secret to making soap, but it is a simple enough process that it could have been discovered by accident. Wood ash is highly alkaline, and so soap might have been discovered when fat from meat cooking on a fire fell into wood ash. Add rain, and you have soap. There's archaeological evidence of manufactured soap found in clay jars in ancient Babylon as early as 2800 BC. A Babylon clay tablet dated 2200 BC provides a recipe for soap using water, alkali, and casino oil, a oil derived from the bark of an evergreen tree. But historians surmise that soap might not have been used for bathing, but as part of the process of textile making. An ancient Egyptian papyrus dated to around 1500 BC describes the making of soap by combining animal and vegetable oils with alkaline salts, and suggests the substance be used to treat skin diseases, but also for washing. There is some disagreement about soap in ancient Greece and Rome. Despite cultures that embraced bathing and cleanliness, the ancient Greeks and Romans did not generally use soap for personal washing. Rather, they rubbed themselves with pumice or clay and then applied oil, and that whole lot was scraped off with a scraper called a stigil. 
There is some evidence that Greeks and Romans knew of soap. The Roman naturalist Pliny the Elder mentioned sapo, the Latin word for soap, in 77 AD. However, the substance may not have been saponified and was described as a waxy substance used by Gauls in their hair. It's possible that the Greek physician Galen described soap in the 2nd century AD, including the process by which it was made from lye and suggested it for bathing. However, the reference was not made until the Middle Ages and may have been wrongfully attributed to Galen. Likewise, a process of soap making is described by an alchemist named Zosimus of Panopolis in Roman Egypt in the 4th century. However, as with the Galen reference, the first note of the reference was long after the period and might not be original, but might have been added after. There's a modern myth that a large soap factory was discovered in the ruins of Pompeii. However, archaeologists are actually not sure of the purpose of the site that some regard as a soap factory, and note that soap was never found among toilet articles in Pompeii. We simply don't know for sure if ancient Greeks and Romans were familiar with, or used, soap. A legend that soap was discovered in the Roman era when animal fats rendered from animals sacrificed on top of Mount Sapo mixed with ash in a stream and local women discovered that the resulting water was better for washing clothes is almost certainly myth. The legends, often used to describe the origin of the word soap, do not appear in ancient times and Roman sacrifices did not burn the actual animal flesh, which would have created the necessary tallow for the process to occur. And there is no record of an actual Mount Sapo. Rather, the name soap was derived from Germanic languages. But while we really don't know for sure if ancient Greeks and Romans used soap, we know that soap was well known in Europe during the Middle Ages, that about thousand year period between the fall of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century and the Renaissance in the 15th century. It's kind of a popular myth that people in the Middle Ages were filthy. We tend to think that they never bathed at all, but in fact, most historians agree that people bathed on a fairly regular basis during the Middle Ages. And yes, they did use soap. Books of Secrets were compilations of recipes and medicinal formulas, and while they were not commonly produced until the 16th century, they include many recipes for the making of soap in the home. Those recipes were apparently handed down folk recipes using ingredients, usually made from tallow rendered animal fats, that a 5th century peasant would have been able to readily access. That is to say, even peasants of the Middle Ages probably made soap in their own homes and likely bathed with it on a regular basis. Although soap would have been relatively soft, dark in color, and without the pleasant smell of perfumed soaps. By the end of the 6th century, there was a recorded guild of soap makers in Naples, and an administrative work in the time of Charlemagne includes soap as an item to be tallied by royal stewards. The wealthy might have been able to bathe in their own home, but many people would have bathed in public bathhouses or natural streams. Cleanliness was supported by the Catholic Church, which built public bathhouses near religious and pilgrimage sites. However, public bathhouses could also be places of prostitution, and bathing could be seen as an indulgence, so there were sometimes strictures by the church authorities regarding excessive bathing. Bathing may have varied by region and season, but bathed they did. At the same time, soap production flourished in the Middle East during the time called the Islamic Golden Age. Unlike European recipes, soap production in the Middle East was often done using vegetable fats, especially olive oil, scents such as laurel oil and salt, which helped separate out glycerin, making the soap harder than European soap recipes. Soap was produced industrially and might have been brought back along with bathing traditions by crusaders. Such soap-making recipes were carried back to Europe in the high to late Middle Ages and became the basis of soap manufacturing for traditional olive oil soaps like Castile soap and Marseille soap, which are still produced today but the imperative for bathing declined somewhat in the late Middle Ages. Part of this had to do with attitudes about public bathing in the age of the Reformation, but it also represented changes in social norms. In terms of religion, the care of one's clothing became more a measure of both the purity of the soul and a person's social class. 
The late Middle Ages saw famines and plagues, and medical thinking in the period dictated that bathing may allow illness or miasma to pass into the body through the pores. Soap was used, of course, to wash those clothes, but etiquette manuals of the late Middle Ages often advised only washing those parts of the body seen in public. As an extreme example, French King Louis XIV was said to have been terrified of baths, only taking them when recommended by his doctors. There's a long-standing belief that he only took three baths his entire life, a claim that is likely an exaggeration, but a Russian ambassador once remarked that the Sun King stunk like a wild animal. He became famous for hiding his stink, which also famously included terrible halitosis, with perfumes. He was, however, scrupulous about his clothing, as that both represented his character and was seen as a way to draw illness from the body. The man who only bathed when doctors ordered was said to have changed his underwear, which was washed in a special perfume, three times a day. England was relatively less soap-averse in the period. Castile soap, imported from Spain, was particularly popular among the court, and Queen Elizabeth I was said to bathe a relatively frequent every four weeks. Soap, however, created a controversy in England when the cash-strapped Carolinian King Charles I raised money during the period of so-called personal rule by selling a patent for the making of soap. Charles, who married a Roman Catholic, Henrietta Maria of France, was already seen as being too Catholic by English Protestant groups. The royal patent for soap went to a company, overseen by Richard Weston, the first Earl of Portland and the Chancellor of the Exchequer, that had Catholics on its governing board. Anti-Catholics were appalled and labeled the soap Popish soap. The soap was not only said to damage both linen and washwomen's hands, but was also alleged to have scarred the soul. While it can't be said to be a causal factor, the scandal over Popish soap represented the fiscal difficulties, perception of graft among the nobility, unpopular decisions, and struggles with Puritans that drove the English Civil War and Charles I's execution. Bathing came into a revival in Europe in the latter part of the 18th century as medical opinions changed and again started to tout the health benefits of bathing, but soap ran into an obstacle in England when in 1712 England instituted a soap tax, largely to help pay for wars in North America. While the tax produced significant revenue for the crown, it tripled the price of soap, essentially making it into a luxury item largely unaffordable to the masses. The tax came at a time of many other taxes, including a brick tax, a candle tax, a clock tax, a gin tax, and most egregious for the history guy, a hat tax. Of course, taxes were also applied to the American colonies in the era and became a leading cause for yet another costly war, the War for American Independence. The English soap tax drove out many soap manufacturers and led to a burgeoning trade in the smuggling of soap. The unpopular tax wasn't repealed until 1853. Even though soap was being manufactured, much of the soap used throughout the world was still made in small batches by artisans or at home using traditional recipes. In 1790, French chemist Nicolas Leblanc developed a process for making soda ash, an alkali, from common salt, a process that was later improved by Belgian chemist Ernest Solvay. This allowed the larger manufacturing of soap, which by the 1850s was one of the fastest growing industries in the United States. Soap became a product driven by the advent both of the Industrial Revolution and some of the first mass marketing campaigns. The work of Florence Nightingale in hospitals during the Crimean War demonstrated the importance of hygiene, including washing hands with soap to prevent infection, even before germ theory was widely accepted. Hand washing became a vital tool in controlling outbreaks like cholera, which depended upon the fecal oral route transmission. During the U.S. Civil War, the United States Sanitary Commission utilized Nightingale's ideas and demonstrated that washing with soap could reduce military mortality. That war helped to build the empire of two brothers-in-law, William Proctor and James Gamble, 
whose contract to provide soap to the Union helped to expand their business. When Union soldiers went home, they brought back Procter & Gamble products with them and made the company a household name. Procter & Gamble is now one of the world's leading producers of personal care and hygiene products. Procter & Gamble eventually refined soap manufacturing using continuous processing that eliminated the need for the fats to be boiled together, speeding the process of soap making. The growing use of indoor plumbing helped to drive the market and make soap ubiquitous. A shortage of animal oils during the First World War led German scientists to seek an industrial alternative, and that led to the development of artificially produced saturated fatty alcohol. And that could be turned into a soap-like substance, but one that was more soluble in water, especially hard water, was the advent of detergents. Many of the things that we call soap today are actually detergents, although most bar soap is still actually soap. Some of this is detergent also, and according to FDA rules, it can't be sold as soap. Instead, it will be sold under a title of something like body bar. Soap has been with us for millennia, but for much of that period it was used sparingly, essentially a luxury item, and the widespread use of soaps that we enjoy today is a relatively recent phenomenon. And if you're one of the millions who is just now learning how to properly wash your hands while singing the song Happy Birthday to You twice, don't be too hard on yourself. The development of guidelines for washing your hands is a very new phenomenon. It wasn't until foodborne illness outbreaks in the 1980s that the United States Centers for Disease Control created the world's first national hand hygiene guidelines. Now is the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy. A little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff you only get to hear about on the podcast. One of the things you do at the beginning of this episode that I think we do in a lot of our episodes and we end up talking about, you know, kind of scientific stuff, is that you spend some time talking about, you know, the scientific part of soap and how soap works. And I think that's really, really interesting because I think we're both interested in science and uh, it's important, at least in some ways, if you want to understand what soap is uh, and the history mm -hmm. of it. Um, but yeah, and, you know, part of what we do is we take things and we kind of translate it into, you know, I'm yeah. not a scientist, uh, but uh, well, I guess you say with my master's degree, I guess I'm kind of a scientist, but not a soap scientist. <laughs> I'm not a phys physicist or a chemist. Uh, uh, I don't even know which science it is. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, and uh, I mean, there's there's a couple of reasons for that in here. But, yeah, I think uh, I enjoyed that stuff. Uh, and we tend to do some background and uh, that makes sense to make sense of the story that we're telling. And it's all it's all part of the story. So I, I enjoyed doing that. I kind of learned on how some things work yeah. there. But one of the things about this particular episode, it came out around the time that COVID was coming. Yeah. You know, people were there. I mean, there suddenly was a bigger issue about washing your hands and how to wash your hands and how often you have to wash your hands. And I mean, that was that was kind of a big deal at the start. I mean, we made this episode at the same time we made an episode on toilet paper, right? Which was also, yeah. remember when toilet paper was a big deal? <laughs> There's no toilet paper in the stores. Uh, so uh, that was part of this too, is that this is, this was part of kind of tying onto what was going on at the time. It's history, obviously, but it was going on at the time and, and a better understanding of exactly how this stuff works. So I liked the science of that. I thought it was interesting to describe it. Uh, and uh, you know, when I, when I rewatched it, I mean, because you know, we make a lot of videos. Yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah, I've seen it before. I made it, but I mean, it's been years. Um, uh, I thought that that part was still kind of interesting to you know quite understand how the how the process yeah. worked. And so I think I think we do enjoy. I mean, we do history of science. Uh, we do history of a lot of things, uh, and I think that taking that and putting it in the context of historical events, the way that they are tied to things like uh, 
the chemistry of soap I, is you know part of I think the charm of the channel. I agree, and I mean I I think that we're both interested in science. Uh, neither one of us uh, pursued you know a, a hard science degree, but it's an interesting it's interesting to talk about it. And to be honest, I hadn't really thought that much about how soap worked. So you know this idea mm -hmm. that it really relies on what the the shape of the molecules and stuff is. I think that's really cool mm -hmm. and really interesting. And if you want to know what soap's doing, you know when you use it, well. It's it's doing that, which is why it's more effective than just you know well, rinsing with and water. And the difference between soap and detergent, yeah, and also that there are things out there that sell like soap that are not really soap, yeah. and they don't have that same effect for you. They're you know they're more you know perfume products that lather. Yeah. Uh, and so I I, thought, I think and I think that's a part of an understanding of the history of soap because if this was more than you know finding just you know some some something some item in nature it was really understanding the chemistry of this stuff and then being able to make this as far back as the greeks or farther uh, being able to make soap understanding the process of how soap is made uh, even before we had any understanding of yeah. you know what was causing disease what was causing you know filth uh, and so it was i think it makes for an interesting and important part of the story and then the development of how the science of making soap develops also affects then how uh, you know soap is you know used in culture and then spreads throughout the world yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, I it is interesting that you know we would use soap before before we even knew what, you know, disease was exactly. Mm -hmm. Uh I mm -hmm. I had heard because uh, you mentioned that uh, about how you can make it with with like ash and if you mix it. Uh I've heard that it could be possible, you know, that to accidentally have made soap that they discovered mm -hmm. it essentially on accident. And I think it's I it's amazing to think that something, you know, as both as mundane but also as like vital to uh, society would could have mm -hmm. just been discovered on accident, but there's there's a lot of other stuff that has been discovered essentially. Yeah. Almost couldn't because how do you understand the chemistry yeah. before you have the discovery? So it is it's really it's really interesting to think at some point you know someone was rendering meat or something like that and got mixed with ash and they came up with soap and then they realized you know that soap made them cleaner. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, it gives you an idea of how clever humanity is, but also how long we've had to develop things and think things through. I mean, we're all used to soap these days, but I mean, think how much time you had to live. Yeah, before somebody stumbled upon the miracle of soap seriously and then of course you know for, for you know for centuries people were you know literally rendering fat out back their house because that's what they were making their soap out yeah of. yeah and that's and that's i mean we made our own soap that was constantly what we did it's also it uh, you know i think a lot of what we think about soap today is you know this perfume that it's supposed to smell like uh -huh. something and uh, that was for most of soap's history was not necessarily was not part of yeah. soap. Yeah, that, that came later. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I also remember them talking about like a, a bronze maybe was could have been accidentally discovered if you, you know, had something of copper and tin that just happened to like burn in a fire and mix. It's it's of, uh, oh, has a low yeah. enough uh, uh, melting well, metal point. Though, you had these shops, you had blacksmiths in yeah. there. You can see why they might have been experimenting with different metals or something like that. True. I mean, but, I mean who, who originally came up with this idea that you take iron ore and that you could turn that into iron? I mean, that's... Yeah. that's that's pretty incredible. So there's a lot of things that we do that you wonder, you know, how, how did someone, you know, come down to yeah. that? Uh, you know, paper making. Good right. Quality. To look at stuff you know? that was this. I mean, nothing. It wasn't didn't look like paper. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a, uh, yeah. You, and and, and the, yeah, the whole, I mean, why, you know, why even, you know, needed paper and then that you realize you could turn, you know, essentially rags or whatever into, into yeah. paper through paper making or, or, or papyrus. Yeah. Goodness. Who thought I'm going to peel these, re these reads open yeah, Mark, and, that, and uh, count them all together for hours at a time. And then someone else said, you know, someone in China said, well, we can just, we can just take cloth bits and we can you yeah. know shake them into paper i mean there's there's lots of you know, more or less you know a, a internal combustion yeah. engine you know i mean the, the the way that stuff development some of it had to start with just you know you, you stumbled on it yeah. soap could do that because it's a fairly simple chemical yeah. process 
Uh, but it's interesting how long it took before we could possibly have understood what that process is doing. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, essentially so, uh, most of, you know, we were using soap into antiquity uh, uh, mm-hmm. and we didn't know, we had no idea what it was doing necessarily. And, you know, that now we're, we're still using yeah. it. Uh, I mean, you, you didn't know what bacteria no. were. You didn't know what germs were. You didn't know how, how being clean or dirty was impacting yeah. health. And yet you were some, you, you had been using soap for hundreds of years. Yeah. Now that's, that's, that's really an well, extraordinary story. You know, I was just, I just did a script on a, on a doctor from, you know, seven, the 17, 1800s. Uh, and they were talking about there, you know, that it, at that point we were still essentially running on, uh, the medieval humors concept of how mm-hmm. how bodies worked and they were arguing over you know what yellow fever was and where it came from and uh, mm-hmm. and they thought yellow fever was contagious from miasma, uh, yeah. but apparently you know yellow fever is not contagious from person to person it's spread by mosquitoes uh, primarily mosquitoes. and so and so that you know they that you would would avoid spending time with someone with yellow fever but actually don't need to do that but i mean this was 1800 years later you know and uh well or more more than that uh where we we still just had no no idea and yet we were still using oh, yeah, a, and you know of course we still have diseases yeah. that we don't know how they pass and we don't and we, we don't get them but it was amazing I and mean, when you remember when COVID came out one of the things that very very quickly they had a genetic structure of yeah COVID. i mean imagine how different things are today I mean, in the 1918 pandemic, we had never had a microscope good enough to be able no. to see a virus. Yeah. I mean, we suspected they existed, but I mean, we no scientist had ever viewed a virus when we were trying to figure out what's going on in the 1918 Terrifying, pandemic. right? We didn't understand yeah. what these... Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you know, we were, for all of the confusion, and, you know, we're still arguing over who understood COVID yeah. and what we should have done. And, I mean, this big political... To be honest, we'll probably be days. arguing about that for... We probably will be forever. A hundred yeah. years from now, they'll, how, still be, I mean, they'll, they'll still be think, an argument. Think how much better shape we're in. And so, who knows now? If a hundred years from now, who knows yeah. if it's, you know, how, how much we're going to be able to know and how quickly we'll be able to answer questions and things like yeah. that. So, uh, but, uh, but I mean, that all starts with, you know, someone who was, you know, uh, somehow took oil and mixed yeah. it with ash and was able to make that into soap and, and, uh, what, you know, how they stumbled upon that. I mean, you know, the Greek origin story is probably apocryphal, yeah. but I mean, it is, I mean, it essentially said they were just cooking meat and the fat rendered fat went into a stream yeah. uh, where there was some ash, volcanic ash or something like that. And, you know, boom, soap. And then they call the, the mountain soap. Yeah, mountain you know. soap. And, uh, and it's not yeah, entirely soap. not yeah. entirely impossible that something like that happened because because of how simple it is. But, you know, I don't, who has any idea uh, if if it did, when it did, uh, if it only happened with one person or if that was something that happened, you know, in all kinds of places. Yeah. It's also interesting that we're really not 100% sure. Uh, and it's kind of a way of, if it's so, so normal, maybe. We're, we're not even 100% sure if the Greeks used it in bathing uh, or the, the yeah, Romans uh, either. Or how, how it was used. Yeah. Yeah. We know that there was some, we find some evidence that there was so, no, we're just but not we sure exactly they, how that was being used. If it had anything to yeah, do with bathing. Want, if society were to collapse today, how many of us would know how to make soap? That's fair. Although uh, I did notice uh, on in the in the background when you brought it up, uh, you had some of uh, Grandma Carolyn's. Uh, uh, oh, to yeah. someone that's true. That's true. My my stepmother uh, uh, made soap for a long yeah. time and went and sold that. Uh, she she used to sell it at. Uh, she would go to like craft fairs and stuff like that. And I was always telling her like, you could sell that on the internet. You could get a much bigger volume, and then you could you know build an extra garage. And, make, and she, uh, she wasn't interested. In <laughs> she that. made soap because she liked going to craft yeah. fairs. She, but for for years and years and years, uh, I didn't buy any soap because 
Uh, every time you went to Carolyn's house, she'd, yeah. she'd send you home with a bag of... Uh, so give you lots of soap. I, I still got quite a I lot. I still have it, too. Yeah, that's... Uh, and she hasn't... Gosh, she yeah. hasn't made soap in, in years. I don't think... I think she's years. moved yeah. through that part of her life. But... Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think she, she she sold her soap making yeah, business. Yeah, yeah. She... Although, when we... When she just recently moved out, uh, moved into a new house, and when we went down there, there was still some soap. <laughs> that so was... She, she, she hadn't made soap in several years, but there were still collections. There were boxes of soap. Uh, and that's... It's... it's And I think she made it... I mean, she, she made it pretty close to, you know, the way they've been making it for a long, long time. Yeah, uh, I think that was a pretty... Uh, I'm not sure what oil that they were using, if that's an olive oil soap yeah. or, or what it is. But I mean, so with, I guess the moral of that story is we do know someone who would know how to make soap. She would know... She could probably teach someone to make it, even though uh, she hasn't done but it she in a lives while. In, in Idaho now, yeah. so none of us know how to refine gasoline in order to be <laughs> It'd be a long way to walk. That's the... We're still in trouble. <laughs> If we if we lose the phone lines, I don't know if I don't know if she could explain soap making to me so, over the there's phone. There's so much that we've invented that people you know that we know so much about that you have to wonder if, if there's you, a societal collapse. Where, you know, you often wonder about it, but even something as simple as soap that we can talk about on the on the yeah. uh, you know we can talk about right here and be like, oh, it's really simple historically, and like you could just accidentally make it. Uh, and yet, if you asked me to go out and make a bar of soap or something, I'd be like, I don't, I'm not even 100 percent sure where to start. Uh, <laughs> I have. Uh, I bet you can. Fit, I mean, you know, honestly, if YouTube was still running, I'm sure that oh, yeah. people would somebody, somebody, so they out there, the they know, people know. Um, but it's, I think it's just, I think it's just a cool, uh, we take so much of this stuff for granted and now that we. It does, yeah. And you have to wonder historically, you know, what does it mean? Yeah. How many people died because they didn't know what soap was? But or, or but how much of human immunity came yeah. because we weren't using soap? Also true, know? right? So there's some advantage to, yeah. to uh, but of course, the infections and stuff like that, there's stuff that we, we maybe could have. That's true. I don't know. But I mean, like animals in the wild don't use soap, right? No. So they haven't invented soap. Uh, they, they managed to live. So who knows? But uh, I mean, it does. It is. That's a sign of the level of human ingenuity that somehow we came up with this idea of soap. Yeah. And then, you, over time, the, the way that it spreads over time, the way that sometimes it's embraced and it's not, and that the Sun King stunk like <laughs> wild animals. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it funny, is a yeah. really interesting story because now it is such a part of yeah. our lives. I mean, pretty much, I think everybody in the modern world is encounters soap on a, at least a daily basis, right? Uh, and and it, do we, have we really thought about how do we how do we get yeah. to where we are? And well, and I like that when we do histories of this kind of stuff that things that you use or see every day and don't, just don't necessarily think about i mean there was a there was a whole history to it and you know you can talk mm -hmm. about uh, popish soap and how there was a, a fight over that kind of thing oh yeah yeah there was a fight over having having catholics on the board of, yeah. the, of the soap that had the monopoly <laughs> under, and under you know those are all interesting pieces of history that we that that who would guess that you could get into that over over yeah. soap? but because everybody needed soap uh, then you can get a lot of money out of taxing yeah. soap and out of selling the monopoly for who gets to make soap and then that means that soap gets tied up in in politics yeah. and that is that is interesting in history yeah. especially since it you know might have been discovered by someone who's you know rendered fat fell into a stream, <laughs> and you know that we had it. There was an underground business in soap at yeah. some point because of the, uh, the soap taxes and, and uh, uh, yeah, that's so uh, it's, it's well. And I mean, I liked the 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 whole the folks in the medieval ages who were probably making their own soap uh, did bathe a lot mm -hmm. more than we than we tend to think. That's uh, true the big too. joke that's is you know they go for a yearly bath or something like that, and actually probably they were uh, reasonably. Uh, yeah, it was hygienic. actually a bit later in the Renaissance when they when they started to you know uh, yeah. uh, worry about bathing, and so they would say only wash your hands, but not your body yeah. underneath. And 
Yes, it's interesting with those periods, but and I think there, I think it's not that long ago people were still making their own soap, kind of, you know, in America. Oh, yeah. I, there was a there was a plot line on the Beverly Hillbillies where Granny was making soap out back, and it was, you know, the smoke from the fires was making people mad in in, in, the, in Beverly Hills. But I, I don't think that that's. I think there probably were you know people in Appalachia at the time yeah. still make their own soap. Out no, back. I mean probably there's some people. I mean people like you know Grandma Carolyn too, who are who are out there making soap in fairly small batches for mm-hmm. their own use. Well, or... I don't think she she wasn't literally rendering. No, no, fire, she wasn't. But... She was. I, I don't <laughs> think so. But uh... <laughs> I, they might have. She might have been using plant oils because yeah. you can use plant oils to make soap too. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I used to, you know, used to be, that was part of the family, you know, job. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you're out on the frontier. You, you yeah, these soap. days we don't, and we don't make much And I think you can still buy anything. some of that sort of raw homemade soap stuff. Yeah. I mean, you can buy, I know you can buy it as a reenactor, you can buy that stuff. So, I mean, I'm sure that's still sold for people. The last thing that I thought was really, really interesting was that this idea that, uh, we didn't have like real conceptual rules in terms of like how you wash your hands uh which we talked yeah. about so much you know when covid came out and like oh people people don't know how to wash is, their hands if I, I don't recall if i was taught in elementary school really the whole idea that you're supposed to wash your hands for a full minute yeah. you're supposed to, i mean I, I you know i uh i know there's a lot of people who don't wash their hands at all right i mean Apparently. we all know that you know there's uh, you know you, whenever you're using the public restroom you're like do i want to touch the door handle because i just washed my hands and the person ahead of me didn't uh but uh, how many of us had just gotten sloppy yeah. and i mean suddenly it was a big worry about about washing hands uh, and that you know uh, and uh, some people were more aggressive about it than others uh but uh yeah so it was it was at the time it really came into i honestly had society gotten sloppy yeah. on hand washing because we'd forgotten why you're supposed to wash your hands and then suddenly we remember again oops uh, and then and then now we're talking about wait where did soap come from I mean, it's an interesting idea uh so yeah it was i mean it was it was certainly apropos to the time but on the other hand it's, you know you don't have to have a, a, a pandemic going around to worry about to wonder about the history of soap yeah. and how we got to all the soap that we do and it's now interesting when you go look at the soap aisle. of course a lot of soaps are liquid soaps yeah. now and i mean you, you when you look at the soap aisle at just a grocery store and say how do we you know how do we come to a whole wall Full of different colors and shapes and sizes and ways that uh, where soap, did that you know? where did that start you know and that's it did I'm old enough to remember when you didn't have a lot of liquid soaps when you actually showered with bar soap and I think fewer yeah it's not 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 as common these, these days anymore. yeah right so uh, you know Christmas is coming up here soon and if you like history and you support what we do one thing that you could give mm-hmm. the gift of history is by getting a history guy T-shirt history guy T-shirts yeah yeah. Uh, uh, we have, you know, a lot of merchandise. We know we have a lot of fans out there. So if you have a History Guy fan among you, then that's a great thing that you can, whether you want a stocking stuffer like a sticker or a magnet or a mug uh, or, uh, you know, whether there's someone that just really wants to wear a T-shirt or a hoodie around town, uh, we will be having pre-Christmas sales. Uh, and so if you go, you can find all of our merchandise on, on the webpage, thehistoryguy.com. Uh, and uh, there we've got a lot of great products. We sell through a company called Fourth Wall. Uh, and uh, you, T-shirts and shirts, a lot of those are referring to our more popular episodes. Uh, and so if you want to uh, give that special gift, that very special gift to a fan of the History Guy or just a fan of history, uh, then uh, then check out our store uh, and our sales and, and uh, Merry Christmas. Next up, the History Guy tells the story of Ignaz Semmelweis, the doctor that learned to wash his hands. The year is 1846, and Hungarian physician Ignaz Semmelweis had just been appointed to a new position as assistant to Professor Johann Klein at the first obstetrical unit of Vienna General Hospital. The next year, Semmelweis would make a radical and controversial suggestion to the medical community. He suggested that doctors should wash their hands. 
Specifically, he thought that doctors should wash their hands in a chlorinated lime solution before examining patients who were pregnant or post-delivery. Seems like common sense today, but at the time, Semmelweis was denounced. He was ridiculed. His suggestions were rejected. The reason that the medical community rejected the idea of washing their hands and the tragic life of Ignaz Semmelweis is history that deserves to be remembered. Ignaz Semmelweis was born in 1818 in what is now Budapest, Hungary. He was fifth of ten children, son of a wealthy grocer. Ignaz began studying law at the University of Vienna, but after a year and for unknown reasons, he switched to medicine. He received his doctorate in 1844. He spent 18 months under the tutelage of Karl von Rokitansky, a leading doctor of pathological anatomy, or that is the study of structural changes within tissues in the body due to disease. Before he decided to specialize in obstetrics, he was rejected twice, seeking other jobs, first in his attempts to become a forensic pathologist, and next when he sought to become the assistant to Vienna Medical School's leading physician. He became assistant to Johann Klein at the first obstetrical clinic at the Vienna General Hospital, a job similar to chief of residence today. Puerperal fever, or childbed fever it was often known, was a major cause of death in 19th century Europe. These were deaths caused by infection shortly after birth, which actually grew in number as professional hospitals became more common. At the Vienna Obstetric Clinic, fatalities were often greater than 10% a month. The illness was horrific for the patient with terrible infections in the birth canal, abscesses in the abdomen and chest, and ultimately a descent into sepsis and death. Doctors did not understand the illness, which they called a desecration. Symptoms usually appeared within 24 hours of giving birth. Despite the risk, maternity hospitals were still appealing, especially for the poor, as services were offered for free in exchange for allowing the doctors to train, and the hospital would also often offer care for the infant. There were two clinics at the Vienna Hospital, the first staffed by doctors, the second by midwives. The second clinic had death rates of around 2%, while the first clinic had rates as high as 18%. Women knew it too and often begged to be admitted to the second clinic. Some would even prefer to give birth in the streets. Semmelweis wanted to understand why there was such a discrepancy between the two clinics. Even women who gave birth in the streets had lower rates of infection. What protected those who delivered outside the clinic from these destructive unknown endemic influences, he asked himself. Later he wrote that everything was in question, everything seemed inexplicable, everything was doubtful. Only the large number of deaths was an unquestionable reality. So he began eliminating possible causes. It wasn't overcrowding because the midwife clinic was more crowded. Ventilation between the clinics was similar, and what small changes he made didn't make a difference. He even considered differing religious affiliation as a possible cause. The only significant difference between the two clinics was who was doing the work. Around the same time, a good friend and colleague died after he was accidentally caught with a student's scalpel during a post-mortem examination. The symptoms and death were very similar to that of childbed fever, and Semmelweis believed that he had figured out what was killing his patients. One of the most important methods for 19th century doctors to learn was by examining cadavers, and doctors regularly did dissections on women who had died at the clinic. They would often go from dissections immediately to delivering babies without wearing gloves or even washing their hands. Semmelweis's colleague died after examining a corpse, and he theorized that what he called cadaverous particles were being transferred onto their hands, and that it was these particles that caused childbed fever. The midwives did not examine corpses, and therefore wouldn't be carrying the particles to the patients. Well, Semmelweis's cadaverous particles don't quite represent an understanding of bacteria, and the bacteria had not been directly observed, he also understood that illness was caused by something contagious. 
He also understood that whatever was causing it, hand washing was vital in preventing the spread. He chose to have his students wash their hands with a solution of calcium hypochlorite because it eliminated the putrid smell of the cadavers, which he assumed meant that it also destroyed his particles. In reality, the solution acted as an antiseptic and killed the bacteria that was causing the infections. Though his cadaverous particle theory was not entirely correct, his policy produced dramatic results. In April of 1847, the fatality rate in the clinic was 18.7%. He instituted his hand-washing policy mid-May, and in June the fatality rate dropped to 2.2%. Over the next six months, the fatality rate peaked at 4.5%, but in January of 1848, Semmelweis instituted strict controls to cure his students' sometimes negligent hand-washing habits. In February of 1848, deaths in the clinic were less than 1%, and in two months of 1848, there were no deaths from childbed fever. He had, through the implementation of a remarkably simple hygienic rule, reduced deaths in his clinic by more than 90%. Semmelweis was not the first person to suspect that doctors themselves were spreading the fever. Famous poet Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. wrote an essay in 1843 called The Contagiousness of Peripheral Fever. Holmes's paper was met with disgust. A prominent obstetrician wrote that it was the June and fizzinless dreamings of a foolish writer, and that doctors who faced epidemics of childbed fever were just unlucky. Even earlier than that, Alexander Gordon became the first person to recognize childbed fever as infectious, after a particularly awful epidemic of childbed fever struck Aberdeen, Scotland in the 1790s. Thomas Watson in London suggested doctors wash their hands to prevent childbed fever as early as 1842. Semmelweis was the first to use hand-washing to demonstrably reduce fatalities, but his ideas weren't any more accepted than Holmes's were. Doctors were understandably reluctant to believe that they were spreading the disease. Prevailing medical thought of the time often blamed the illness on miasma, or bad air. Toward the end of 1847, word about his remarkable success had started to spread across Europe to mixed results. He and his students had begun sending letters to prominent obstetricians across the continent. Ferdinand von Hebra, leader of Austria's most prestigious medical journal, reported Semmelweis's findings in December of 1847 and again in 1848, claiming the discovery could be as significant as Edward Jenner's use of cowpox vaccine to prevent smallpox. Semmelweis believed that his results spoke for themselves and did little to advertise or defend them, but across Europe resistance found hold. Even in England, where they generally believed childbed fever to be infectious, they brushed his work aside as nothing new. While another British doctor said that Semmelweis had proved that miasms from the dissecting room had caused the fever. This is a misunderstanding of his work, but Semmelweis himself offered no official defense. Semmelweis's work had irritated his superior, Johann Klein, and Semmelweis's two-year turn at the clinic was coming to an end. Klein may have had another doctor apply for the job, who he chose, despite Semmelweis's recommendations. He was then rejected when he applied to become a docent or private lecturer on obstetrics in 1849, again because of Klein's opposition. He was given the job in 1850, but with a condition that he would not be allowed to work on cadavers. He left suddenly and without saying goodbye to his students or colleagues, saying that he was unable to endure further frustrations in dealing with the Viennese medical establishment. He returned to Budapest and accepted the unpaid honorary position of head physician of the obstetric ward at St. Rocco Hospital. The ward had a major problem with childbed fever, which he effectively eliminated. But even other doctors in Budapest refused to take up the treatment. He became the professor of obstetrics at the University of Pest in 1855, where he again instituted handwashing to great success. He turned down a job to become a professor in Zurich and married Maria Windhofer, 19 years his junior, in 1857. He would have five children, though two died in infancy. 
1858, he published his first account of his own work. He expanded his theory to include more decaying matter and cancer tissue when faced with events that didn't fully fit his theory. In 1861, he published his full work, An Etiology, Concept, and Prophylaxis of Childbed Fever. Semmelweis was deeply affected by the rejection of his work. He wrote that, In published medical works, my teachings are either ignored or attacked. The medical faculty at Würzburg awarded a prize to a monograph written in 1859 in which my teachings were rejected. A German conference of scientists, including the renowned Rudolf Virchow, known as the father of modern pathology, rejected it, which likely helped others reject it too. A doctor in Prague called the theory naive and reflecting critics' belief that Semmelweis's work was unscientific, called it the Koran of peripheral theology. Many scientists thought the idea of cadaverous particles was returning to unscientific, superstitious explanations for disease. An 1848 critique was typical. It bemoaned that neither the observations nor the opinions grounded on them are presented with the clarity, and added that Semmelweis's experiment wasn't specific as to what cadaverous particles really were. The specific contagen seems to be of little importance to Dr. Semmelweis. Indeed, it is so little considered that he does not even discuss the direct transmission of the disease from those who are ill to healthy persons lying nearby. Doctors doubted that there could be enough material left on hands to cause infection. One response to Holmes's paper was that doctors are gentlemen and gentlemen's hands are clean. One doctor even claimed the experimental results showing dramatic decreases in infection depended partially on periodic accidental factors, or that is, on random variation. And that doctor went on to say, I must judge provisionally that his opinions are not clear enough and his findings not exact enough to qualify as scientifically founded. Negative responses to his book only inflamed him more. He wrote letters to his detractors, called one doctor a partner in this massacre, and said, should another not teach the students to wash their hands, I declare before God and the world that you are a murderer and that it would not be unjust to you if it memorialized you as medical Nero. By 1861, he suffered from numerous nervous complaints, was absent-minded, and was obsessed with childbed fever. His friends and even his wife were concerned for his health. He was committed to a mental institution on July 30th, 1865, and after an altercation with the guards, he was beaten badly. He died two weeks later of sepsis from infection, an unfortunately ironic death for men who fought to end childbed infections. He was buried in Vienna, but few attended his funeral. Other doctors would make important contributions after his death. Joseph Lister used carbolic acid to treat wounds and clean instruments as a disinfectant in the 1860s. He also faced criticism for his theories. Robert Koch became the first person to link a specific microorganism with a specific disease. Most importantly, and apparently unaware of Semmelweis's work, Louis Pasteur developed experiments that provided direct evidence for the germ theory of disease, which finally convinced Europe and led to a massive paradigm shift in the field of medicine. In 1891, Semmelweis's body was moved back to Budapest, and in 1964 it was moved to the house in which he was born, which is now a museum. By the turn of the century, his work was being applauded rather than derided, and became more influential than probably he ever imagined that it could be. Even in Germany, where they followed his advice, even though they didn't necessarily believe in his theory about particles. He has been recognized as a pioneer of antiseptic policy, and many hospitals have been named after him. Postage stamps, coins, and more recently, a Google Doodle have been designed in his honor. He's also the namesake for something called Semmelweis Reflex, which is a metaphor to describe that human behavior that's characterized by reflexively rejecting new ideas that challenge entrenched norms and beliefs. He was perhaps a difficult man, or refused to stoop to advertising his theory because it was so obvious to him that it was correct, but his 
work was important, and he has finally been rightly recognized as a man ahead of his time. You know, so ultimately, uh, this one, which has a little bit to do with with soap, but is really mostly to do with hygiene, uh, it's it's very hard for me <laughs> to try to imagine a time where not only did people, you know, not wash their hands as a matter of because we didn't understand what germs were, but they actively, actively uh, fought against it. Uh, it's actively fought. It's not, we're not just doc- people. Doctors. doctors. Doctors did not wash their instruments. Yeah. Uh, and actively fought against it and thought it was ascientific to think that. Hey, con- conceptually, uh, and, yeah. I, I just trying to get my brain into a place where we could. It's a it's a really good example of and they, they talk about it uh, here with the the the, uh, the what do they call it? The Semmelweis reflex, uh, this this mm-hmm. idea of uh, how I mean, how honestly experts can fail with this concept of what we think is uh, mm-hmm. well understood science and that when someone starts to challenge that you know one of the ideas of science is supposed to be that when someone starts showing you contrary evidence that you examine it and uh, this was a case where they clearly were finding every reason absolutely refused to and so so now it seems so common sense uh and at the time they had no idea that that illness was being passed from one person to another and his experiences you know with uh, mostly with you know uh, pregnancy deliveries his experiences i mean seems pretty powerful yeah and they were essentially arguing that these studies weren't scientific, and therefore, you know, these results can't be real. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, it's it's terrifying. But you know, on the other hand, I mean, we are, you know, we're in a time when we're. I mean, there's still a lot of questions over, oh, yeah. over you know, I mean, there'd be huge fights over, you know, the the, the COVID vaccines and et cetera, uh, where, uh, uh, you know, honestly, you don't always know no, yeah. if if new science is real or new science isn't. But it's hard to imagine the the, the medical community resisting, yeah, you know, just using basic sanitation procedures on the tools that they're carrying across from a sick person to a. I mean, stuff person. we would consider so so basic, yeah. And I, you know, even you know, even Semmelweis. I mean, he's coming from a time where they they didn't understand that there were. Uh, that there were germs. This is before germ theory. Yes. And he's... That was part of the complaint yeah. is that they couldn't say, like, what are these germs like? You know, you don't... You and he, know, he so, didn't really so offer the an, an explanation. No, he just... I mean, it was just obvious to him that you were carrying something yeah. over from the sick person to the healthy person that was making the healthy person sick. And, you know, the, their feeling was, well, if you can't tell us exactly what these particles are, then we're not going to believe that they yeah. exist. I'm like, you know, uh, I think it's pretty common sense. That somehow, but I mean, it's the same time when they thought that miasma was spreading, yeah. spreading illness and, and uh, you know, they had had no concept of how a lot of stuff but it, was, was spread. It is truly, I mean, probably the most disappointing thing is that he, his, I mean, they were going to argue about it being scientific, but essentially he was going into places where, I mean, there was large uh, fatalities. Mm-hmm. Uh, he instituted, mm-hmm. huge percentage. I mean, he instituted something so simple and immediately was seeing significant drops. Yeah, fatality rights decreased, and they just didn't want to. No, they that. just. They oh, it's so just lucky. Just oh, it's it's just it has nothing to do with <laughs> causation. Correlation yeah, doesn't. You, you have to because because it, it used to be you know that childbirth yeah. was very very deadly, and you know, so how much of that was because we were simply spreading illness yeah. between the two. Well, yeah. So it, it is a terror, and it, you know that's the real story of you know, Simmelweis when you when hear it is to say that here's this guy that really figured something out yeah. that everybody should understand, and they just refused to listen to him because he he wasn't necessarily part of the mainstream yeah. he wasn't necessarily you know one of the influential scientists and there are other examples of that yeah. i mean that we've you know they talked about you know in, in uh, the, the doctor that in london that was discovering cholera yeah. was he was linked to a dirty well and uh, or the the, uh, the 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 royal navy doctor who figured out that lime could prevent yeah. uh, scurvy and stuff like that and you know no, no one wants to believe him wants to move on 
uh, and so I, and you wonder how much of that is part of history. But on the other hand, I mean, sometimes people who you know are you know they believe them and they and they do things and they turn out that they're totally yeah. crazy. It has nothing to well, do with how things work. And to some extent, so, you could say that you know Simmelweis was was lucky because despite the fact that he did not understands the underlying causes of disease I and mean, when you look at his stuff he he clearly wasn't wasn't getting it he just was he was just saying you know i have a, i have an experiment that shows that if you do this one thing it makes a large difference and he had no real ability to explain why that was um yeah. and you know he had this very specific this like lime calcium wash that they they wash their hands in uh and for him you know he he said oh it doesn't smell like dead people anymore <laughs> and so that must be you know that must be why what that is well yeah but it might not have been the smell no, i mean but smell. that's probably a good thing right if your hands if the doctor's hands smell like dead people <laughs> then you gotta guess that they got something on them, right? I, I, you, you gotta think that that's bad. maybe they shouldn't go on working on live people with hands that smell like dead it, people. it does admittedly you, you look at it and you're like gosh it seems like he was just he looked around found something really rather simple and said hey maybe we should do this differently and uh mm-hmm like anyone could have anyone could have done it because it, it didn't require yeah. him to come up with some crazy new theory or anything like that for heaven's sakes yeah just the idea that a doctor should wash up <laughs> you know, keep some of this clean well before messing with the patient, it is so. i i mean it's frightening when you look at this as a, as a time where you were literally more likely to die uh, if you you know went and had birth in the hospital and so these were people who uh, were apparently having you yeah. know better uh, l- lower fatality yeah. rates if you gave birth in the street. Yeah, midwives had a better understanding, yeah. uh, really, of of what was going on, you know, just from basic experience. Yeah, and see, that's an interesting so way. It is, that... it is an interesting, but it's also this just a story of someone who just saw yeah. something wrong and went to address it. And and you know that there's something cool about the bravery to say yeah. that this is working, and I'm not gonna even if I don't quite understand why. And it moved us a long way towards yeah. understanding germ theory and stuff like that. There's, even though I don't quite understand why. Uh, it really makes sense here that we're saving lives. And then, you know, just trying to suggest that other people do it too. I mean, he demonstrably saved lives. I mean, even at the time. Yeah, demonstrably saved lives and yet still could not, you know, work his way into the medical community to really change things the way they should. But, you know, his name is, is, you know, reasonably well known today for for that. I mean, I think people have learned lessons. It's too bad that so much Uh, of it came, you know, after he died, but... uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's true that you know people now we look at him and said he was he was right and honestly i mean who knows how many lives we could have saved just by uh getting doctors mm-hmm. to wash their hands but uh that that's not, you know that it's soap you know we didn't really understand no. how soap worked but we knew that it did and we keep and we kept using yeah. it and somehow somehow we lost that wisdom by the time we hit the 19th century. it is kind of amazing how some of that you know as we got more advanced uh, they had decided saying oh that that's an old you know that's a that's a superstition that's a folktale kind of thing and <laughs> and we we say that about all kinds of things but sometimes you look back and you're like oh that was maybe a little more than just a superstition <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe maybe it took a lot of, of trial and error to come yeah, up. Yeah, they, with that. they so might not have understood it. exactly what was, uh, but you know that's that's true of all like medicinal plants, which is you know essentially what medicines mm-hmm. were until until fairly recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, that wasn't we didn't know what you know made like Peruvian bark, which had quinine in it and was effective against uh, malaria. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't know why it was, uh, but some yeah. they, they tested well, things. I mean, a lot and... of herbology doesn't no. really do anything, you know, and uh, but uh, a, a good deal of it does. Yeah, and some of it, and some of it yeah, actually it... is, you know, has proves to be fairly effective, even though we didn't know what was making it effective at the time. Some of it was also just uh, we were doing things because we thought maybe it would help, and it, it didn't do anything at all. But <laughs> uh, that's that's uh, you know sometimes it would sometimes it make it worse. I mean, gosh, they they did a lot of mercury. <laughs> mm, that's true yeah 
Well, and, and you know, that's still a discussion. Uh, you know, if you, I mean, anybody who wants to talk about uh, uh, herbal remedies yeah. and all sorts of stuff, a lot of it's not regulated. And so, I mean, it's still, uh, and, you know, but there are some scientists out there that are really trying to understand uh, yeah. uh, traditional medicine and figure out what works and what doesn't and be able to put that into a scientific yeah. sense. But it's, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting that, you know, you have this idea of this is what science is. And therefore, if you haven't found it through what we say science is, and we're just going to ignore the possibility that it is effective, then, you know, then you get the cautionary tale of Ignaz Semmelweis, who said at the same time, they're saying, you know, it's, it's unscientific to think that you should clean your surgical instruments yeah. and, and, you know, sterilize because them. Because essentially we, we've decided you weren't being scientific enough about it. And it's, it's, it is frightening that you could see something as effective as what Semmelweis did. And I, I don't know, this is, this is an interesting conversation in the modern world because there's, there are lots of people who would argue, you know, that these homeopathic remedies and stuff like that mm -hmm. are uh, that we should pay more attention to them and there's also some reasons why that stuff can be kind of dangerous uh, so i don't i don't want to yeah, say that and we, yeah we're, we're, we talk history yeah. we don't want to get into that i mean people will argue over i mean right now really yeah. some very very stout arguments because the the pandemic that we just went through over you know what yeah. is effective medicine what is not effective medicine is the goal here is not to try to say that anybody's wrong or right about anything that's going on it is to say that uh, sometimes uh, we get a, a bizarre form of tunnel vision yeah. where you know we just believe something is accepted science, and therefore we don't accept that there might be you know a better way to do something. And uh, those are lessons that we've learned in history. And and so I hope that whoever has any of these discussions on on treatments for any kind of illness, I hope that they know who Ignaz Semmelweis was, yeah. and that they remove the hubris enough to have an open mind. Well, you'd hate to uh, you'd hate to get to a point where we find out that uh, something we could have done very small. Uh, would have made a huge difference in terms of uh, you know lives mm -hmm. lost, uh, and I think that that's that is what the lesson here is that we want to make sure that we understand that there uh, can be there are things that we don't know yet. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and and that if we just stick what, with what we think we know, then we might end up yeah. you know costing in the long run. Yeah, uh, and I that's it's supposed to be one of the fundamentals yeah. of science, and yet it goes the other direction where. Science becomes, you know, we know what truth is, yeah. and therefore we're not going to listen to uh, what might challenge our truth. It is, uh, it's interesting how this happened, and this was a very historical and a very real historical example of how this kind of stuff can uh, can can change, and how what we know, you know, a hundred years from now, might prove that there were there were things that seemed simple uh, that we put aside because we thought they were dumb, and <laughs> maybe maybe they weren't as dumb as we thought they were. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History, and if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.